you ever wonder where certain proverbs or sayings come from? Like here in Canada, I grew up here, and we hear these sayings and these proverbs and these, these pieces of wisdom passed around that we may sort of get, but you don't really get, and you're really confused as to like where they came from. Like I, and, and for me, I grew up in an Asian home, and so we never heard these sayings growing up. Like we never heard them. And so when I would go out and, and be around people at school, at church, just anywhere, and they would use these phrases, I would look at them like, what are you talking about? What? Like, don't let the cat out of the bag. Or the early bird catches the worm. Or how about this? A leopard can't change his spots. What? Well, there is one that I did grow up hearing, and my Nana used to say this all the time when we were kids, is an apple a day keeps a doctor away. And that's a, a popular one, but uh, for me, uh, that was cruel because I'm actually slightly allergic to apples. But anyways, um, there's many of these sayings and, and proverbs out there. Um, but there's actually one of these phrases that I've really come to enjoy and I use quite often in, in my own conversations. And it's this, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I use it all the time. I use it in, in ministry. I use it when I'm trying to explain certain points. But I was thinking about that, that uh, phrase earlier and I was wondering, well, what does that really mean? Like, where does that even come from? Like, we know what it means. Like, we know it means not to overreact and, and not to get rid of something really good when you're trying to get, something, get rid of something that's bad. Like, we know what it means, but where does it come from? Like, where does that saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, come from? Like, maybe back in the day, was there some pervasive problem going around where moms were washing their babies and then accidentally throwing them out? Like, was this some sort of problem back in the day where, you know, a mom would have their precious little newborn and they would go down to the river to go wash them and put the baby in the basin and fill it with some water. But then they would get overwhelmed with all the things that they had to get done. They had to go home and get ready for their husband to come home and maybe uh, cook and clean. And they would start to get in their own head that they forgot about their baby. And so when they go to throw out the dirty bath water, they would accidentally throw their baby into the river, never to be seen again. Like, was this a problem back in the day that they had to be passing around this wisdom and this advice to all the moms? Is that where this comes from? Well, I looked it up and it turns out it was based off of this German illustration. This German illustration by Thomas Müller. I think that's how you would say it. Uh, I should ask my dad who speaks German. Thomas Murner maybe. And he published this woodcut piece, um, which was then later referenced by Scottish philosopher and German scholar, Thomas Carlyle. And now you can look into the whole backstory of it and it, it'd take a really long time to explain everything. But um, Thomas Carlyle would use this illustration to combat against slavery of black people in the 19th century. And that's how we get this in English saying of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I know you didn't tune in here today to hear about old German proverbs or um, proverbs in general, but I bring this illustration up because I think it helps us 
link the first part of Romans chapter seven, which we used, which we talked about last week, to what we are talking and where we're going today. And so last week we talked about the law. And when I refer to law, I don't mean just the 613 Jewish laws that we read about in the Torah. I'm talking about the law that is written on our hearts. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter two, verse 15, about how the law is written on all of our hearts. I'm talking about this, this sense of morality, um, this underlying distinction we have between good and bad. And something that we all, I would say all of society, all of human society is trying to live by. We talked about how we are no longer bound to the law, but that Jesus coming, Jesus's life, death and resurrection has now severed our relationship with the law so that we can now live in relationship with the spirit, with God. Paul used the illustration of a spouse dying so that we can move on to a new relationship. But then it made me think, it made me think about the law. Like now that we're saying that we're, are, we're severed from the law, like we don't have a relationship with the law, but then is the law bad? Like, what are we supposed to do with the law? Like, what do we do with this moral code that we all have and this underlying understanding we have between good and evil? There's a struggle here. And because we know we aren't bound to it anymore, it talks about that in the, first, in the beginning of chapter seven, that we're not bound to it anymore. But do we completely ignore it? Like, is the law completely to be tossed away? And maybe furthermore, maybe is the law bad? Like maybe the law was this bad thing that we were trying to get past and now we can just completely move on from it. Like, do we get rid of the law? I think sometimes Christians and, and really everyone, we can villainize rules, like this idea of rules and laws. We can villainize it sometimes, right? We, we have sayings like the rules are meant to be broken or, or maybe in Christian circles, we understand that we are covered by grace, so the rules don't matter. We don't have to fall into legalism anymore. And so we can just throw it all out. I know for me, when I, when I first understood that Christianity wasn't about jumping through hoops and that I don't have to earn forgiveness, I don't have to earn salvation, that God comes and covers me in his grace, that I was like, perfect. I don't have to care about doing good or bad. I can just live my life. But I think we might swing the pendulum too far to use another proverb or phrase, that we go too far when it comes to the law and that we get rid of it completely and we miss the point of our morality. We miss the point of doing good. We paint it with this just broad brush, but that is not the case. And Paul is actually warning us here in these verses not to go too far, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's why I love Paul and Romans because he answers the very questions that we have. Like the very question that as I was reading through chapter seven, I was like, okay, but then what do we do with the law? He answers that very question. And he does it quite literally. It says in verse seven, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Boom, right there, right off the bat. Is the law bad? No, the law is not bad. The law is not sin. So right there, Paul is going to reveal to us now what do we do with the law? 
All right, we're gonna unpack where, what is our relationship to the law? What is, where do we stand with the law? And, and for us today, this is gonna be our anchoring point. And, and if you take notes, you can write this down, that the law reveals three things, the fact, the depth, and the deceitfulness of sin. Fact, depth, and deceitfulness of sin. And, and for you pastors or communicators out there who love to use alliteration um, when making your point, I purposely did not do that today because I'm not gonna be one of those pastors, okay? And so uh, that's what Paul is gonna, is gonna explain to us is the law and the purpose of the law and the function of the law. And so the first thing that the law does is that it reveals the fact of sin. As we talked about already in verse seven, that the law is not sin. The law is actually good as Paul is gonna talk about later on in these verses. But in fact, it actually reveals the truth of sin. It brings awareness to sin. And that's so important because awareness is key. If we don't even know there's a problem afoot, then we will not know to deal with that problem. If we don't, if we're never aware of sin being real, then we never will address our sin. It's like when I was, uh, I was one of our camp counselors back in the day, long, long time ago, I was in high school. Um, and I worked at a day camp actually here at this very church, Bayview Glen. Um, and I was in charge of my group of boys and we were running around. Um, and if any of you know day camp, you know how much work it is and you know how much energy it takes from you. And we would run around, we would play sports, we'd be outside, inside doing whatever. And I would sweat a lot. Like I, I would exert a lot of energy. And I was a, a chubbier, boy back in the day but going through camp I would be running around and exercising a lot um, unknowingly and I would I actually lost a lot of weight I lost a lot of weight and I didn't realize it because you're just going about you're sleep deprived you're just running around doing what you need to do having a lot of fun uh, in the meantime but I didn't realize I was actually losing a lot of weight until one of my friends came up to me and was like why do you wear such baggy clothes? And it was then I realized like, oh, I didn't realize. I was no longer an extra large, I was actually a medium. And so until someone brought awareness to the way I was dressing and the fact that I was wearing clothes that I shouldn't be wearing anymore, I didn't even realize the change and the transformation that had happened. And that's kind of the same thing here, that when we can bring awareness to this problem, when we realize that um, the law actually was uncovering sin and revealing sin, then we can take our first step. Then we can start using the law how it was meant to be. And so the law, the function of the law was to reveal sin, to uncover sin so that we would know it just exists. Like that's the first step, just know that sin exists. Paul's gonna use an example to illustrate this here. So, the end of verse seven goes like, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. See, a lot of times we think sin is just, uh, the outward stuff. It's just about what we do and, and don't do bad things, right? Don't do harmful 
things. And, and that is part of it. That is part of what sin is. But we have to understand that sin is much deeper, that there's actually an inward thing going on. One interesting uh, thing that I, I was uh, uncovering here in Genesis 4, it talks about how sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. See, we understand that sin was actually lying dormant, that it was dead, but when the law came into play, that it came alive. F.F. Bruce says that the law acts as a stimulus to sin, that when the law was introduced, when the law was brought into play, sin was stimulated. It was awoken. And so there was an, and then there was an inward reaction uh, when sin took a hold of the law. Paul gives, gives us an example of this. Right? He talks about coveting, and, and we're told not to covet. But because of sin, that's all we want to do. Now that this thing has been placed in front of us, this is all that we want to do. And so instead of running from coveting and, and just appreciating what we have, we go after it. It's like that trend that was going on a while ago where, where parents would uh, take their little child, their little toddler, and, and place them down in front of a camera and then put a cookie or some sort of treat in front of them and say, okay, you can have the cookie, but wait. I'm gonna go, don't have the cookie, wait. Don't have the cookie, I'm gonna go. And then when I come back, then you can have the cookie. Then you can have that treat. And so the parent would hit record, make sure the kid was ready, and then they would walk away. But what would the kid do? You, look, you could see it in their face. You could see the internal struggle that they had where they would just stare at the cookie. They would just stare at the, the treat in front of them. And knowing that they were not supposed to have it, but all they wanted was that treat. All they wanted was the cookie. It was really cute. These, these videos were really cute. I recommend trying to find some on YouTube. But you can see that internal struggle and that's what happens with us and that's what happened with the law is that we have this internal struggle in the depth of us where we know what we're not supposed to do. And we're gonna talk about that in, in future uh, passages, but we know what we're not supposed to do. But because of our sin nature, we just want to eat that cookie all the more. We just wanna go after it even more. See, the law came in and said, thou shalt not. But sin nature says, well, I will. The, the law came in and said, thou shalt do, thou shalt. But sin nature said, well, I won't. And so the law reveals the depth of the sin that was in us. And maybe that resonates with you. Maybe for you, there's an internal struggle. Maybe there's something going on where you know that you're not supposed to be doing that. That you know the, the difference between right and wrong. That you know that you might be caught up in this habit, this cycle of something. And you know what's good. Maybe you even know how to get out of it. But because of the sin nature in us, the depth, the deep-rooted sin that is in us, all we want is to do that thing. That all we want to do is rebel. And we can't really help it. Well, Keep paying attention because God doesn't want to leave us in that struggle. He doesn't want to leave us in that perpetual cycle, that downward spiral of rebellion. And so let's keep reading. 
the last thing that the law reveals is it reveals the deceitfulness of sin. That's the third thing. It reveals the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. See, because sin took what was supposed to help us pursue God. It took what was supposed to help us pursue holiness, to pursue what was good and right. And it led us even further away from that. It deceived us. And the law revealed that. The law revealed just what sin was trying to do. It revealed this underlying agenda that sin had but how it was trying to take us even further away. And it does that to us today. We have, we have these laws and morals, and, and it might not be the same uh, thing as the Jewish people would have had, the 613 laws in the Torah, but we still have this underlying sense of good and trying to do good. But what ends up happening is it, it leads us into this downward spiral. We, we try our best, and maybe we break that habit for one week one month, one year, but then we fail because we're trying to do it out of our own strength. We're trying to do it out of our own effort. And when we fail, because we're not in this relationship and we're not trying to find our strength in God, it leads us into shame and guilt and just leads us further and further and further down this downward spiral. And as Paul would say, it leads us to death. Spiritual death, a divide in our faith and a relationship with God, because that's what this is about. It's about our relationship with God. Sin severs that. Sin hurts our relationship with God, where we feel that shame and guilt when we can't go to God anymore. That is the power of sin. And so to summarize, sin uses the law to bring death, because that is the power of sin. The power of sin uses the law to bring death. It brings harm to our relationship with God. And so maybe you find yourself in that boat. And in today's day, um, we don't grow up learning about the 613 laws. We don't follow every command the same way. That's not ingrained into us in the same way. But what we do have is this inward feeling that we have to do it ourselves, that we have to be good on our own. And we've fallen into society's trap where we think that we are what we do, that we believe that our identity is in the things that we do. For example, when you meet someone new and you're having small talk and you're in conversation, what's the first thing? What's one of the first things you ask them? What do you do? What do you do? Are you in school? Are you doing this job? What job do you have? What career? What, where is your life going? What are the things that you do? We are um, defined by who we are. Our identity is rooted, whether we realize or not, in the things that we do. I, uh, I was talking to a young man. He just moved off to university, um, and he is such a good kid, such a good kid, such a man of God. But like a lot of students, um, when they go off to university, they 
can sometimes be tempted into making some poor choices, some really bad choices sometimes. And the problem is it hurts their relationship with God. They feel like they can't go to God anymore. And in this young man's case, that was the deal. He um, is a believer and, and really does love Jesus, but being introduced to the things of this world and, and the things that are common um, when you move away and, and go off to university, you start getting caught up in things and it starts to lead you into that downward spiral. And, and he started to believe that he was the sum of some of his choices, that his identity was rooted in the things that he was getting caught up in and, and that he was these poor choices that he was making. But the really great part is that he then realized, no, my identity doesn't come from my mistakes. My identity doesn't come from the degree that I have at this university. My identity doesn't come in the future that I'm pursuing. My identity comes from God. That who I am is not what I do. And when he realized that, that's when things changed. That's when he was able to go back to God, ask for forgiveness. Start, and that's when he started to make some better choices and make some better decisions. And so let me remind you of that, that you are not what you do. You are not a sum of your past mistakes, that you are not defined by how much more good you do than bad, or maybe how much more bad you do than good. Because that voice saying that you are those things isn't God talking. That's the enemy in sin trying to distract you. See, you thinking that you need to be this perfect person in order to stand before God and that you need to be this perfect person out of your own strength and effort so that maybe on the balance and scale of life that maybe you'll weigh a little bit more on the good side than the bad. We don't need to live in that tension anymore. We don't need to live in the small details of trying to be a good person for whatever reason that you may have. Because that only leads to death. That way of living and that um, pattern, as we talked about last week, that pattern of living, it only leads to spiritual death because the enemy knows that he can, if he can keep trying to get you to dance the dance and, and, and sing the song and try and live by the rules of the law and try and do it out of your own effort, that he can distract you from what God has for you, from that relationship that God has for you and what he really intended for the law. And so let's finish, let's finish these verses. Uh, verse 12 says this. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And so to clarify a lot of what we've been saying, sin uses the law to bring death. But the best part, the best part is that God does not leave us there. God does not leave us in that problem to try and figure it out on your own. Because see, where sin uses the law to bring death, God uses the law to bring life. God uses the law to bring life. See, God's intention for the law was never 
to bury us, never to have us fall into this downward spiral where we're trying to achieve this unachievable goal of, of perfection and, and perfecting, perfectly living out the law. No, the law was always meant to bring us life. But sin, sin took a hold of that and used the law to bring death, to cut us off from the Father, to sever that relationship that we have with, with, with God and then make it about ourselves. To bring death to that relationship with God so that we can just focus on ourselves and how good that we can be on our own. Because the law was good. It talks about it right there. The law was always good. It'd be like giving me the keys to a sports car. One of my, one of my really good friends, he, uh, a few years ago, he got a really, really nice convertible. It was manual. And he brought it over and we met up and we, we got to, uh, I got to see it and it was really nice. And he's like, hey, do you want to drive it? And I was like, well, I don't know how to drive manual. Eh, it's fine. You'll just sit in it and, and kind of play around. And so I sat down, got in the car, we took the, the roof off and I put it into neutral and I almost hit him. Like it was, it was a little scary. I had to hit the brakes and, and put it back uh, or put the parking brake back on. But see, this car, there was nothing wrong with the car. It was actually a really great car. It was, it was beautiful, low kilometers, awesome. I'm sure sports cars enthusiasts would love the car because it is good. But in my hands, for someone that was not experienced, I could have hurt someone, right? I really could have hurt someone, but in the right hands, when used correctly, it's a, lo it's a lot of fun. I got to sit in the passenger seat. He took me on a ride and it was a lot of fun. And see, that's, that's the law. That's similar to how the law is supposed to be. When sin got a hold of the law, it brought death. It brought pain. It severed our relationship with God. But when God uses the law, when God's purpose for the law, the function of the law is, is actually used properly, it's fun. It's good. It brings joy. It brings peace. It brings life. And so if we allow God to have the law work as it was originally purposed, it restores us spiritually. We can be in union with God again. And, and so what does that look like? What does that actually look like for us? What do we do with the law now? Well, the first thing and kind of the ground basis that we need to establish here is that we cannot throw away the law. We can't just dismiss it or downplay it or think that it's, it's not important anymore because Jesus didn't. Jesus would have had that same attitude or the same attitude. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. prophets excuse me. I've, come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus doesn't toss it away. Jesus doesn't toss the baby out with the bathwater. And so neither should we. We need to understand that the law is actually good that it's holy and righteous. Instead, here's what we ought to do. And there's two things. The first thing is let the law reveal the sin in you. Let the law reveal the sin in you. The really cool thing um, that we can do with today's sermon and those three points about the fact, the depth, and deceitfulness of sin is that we can actually apply that and use those three functions of the law to help us reveal how sin might be 
um, playing in your life, how it might be interacting with you, what your relationship might be with the law. And so let me, let me give you an example. Let's, let's take forgiveness. Like maybe there's someone that has wronged you and there's this idea of forgiveness that the law wants to reveal in you. And the, so the law or commandments might either, uh, one, it might reveal the fact that you need to forgive someone. That the Holy Spirit may convict you of holding on to this spirit of unforgiveness towards someone that you may, may never even realized it. See, that's the law working in you. It brings awareness, it brings fact, it brings light of the sin in the first place. Or maybe the law will reveal the depth of how much you need to forgive someone. Maybe it'll uproot how much you're holding on to that grudge. Like, yeah, maybe I have to forgive them, but maybe the law will actually reveal the depth of it, that there is a deep-rooted grudge that you may have over someone that you didn't even realize. Or maybe the law will reveal something you're deceiving yourself. Maybe, sorry, maybe you're deceiving yourself that this person doesn't even need forgiveness, that you know that there's harm, that harm has been done, but you've deceived yourself into thinking that they don't deserve forgiveness, but the law will reveal that's not true, that we all deserve forgiveness. And so allow the law to reveal sin in you, whatever sin that might be. And the second thing we can do is confess. Confess what the law has brought up to you. Confess those things. So now that the law has revealed them, now confess it. Confess and, and truly go before God and say, hey, I know I've messed up here. Confess them and go to God. Don't get caught up in shame and guilt, but go towards God and confess them. I think of, I think of David, big character in the Bible, and I think of, of Psalm 51 specifically. And we know how highly esteemed David was. We often refer to him as the man after God's own heart. But we also know that David was imperfect. We know that he committed adult, adultery with Bathsheba. But look at how David deals with his sin in Psalm 51. He's confronted with it and he's talking to Nathan. He says this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, and did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And, and Psalm 51 continues on, and David keeps talking about similar things, about how he's confessing and revealing his sin. But let's model what David did. And we can use those three functions again of the law. In verse four, he um, reveals his sin. He recognizes his sin and he confesses. And he says, against you, you only, I have sinned. God, I've done it. I've done these things. He, brought, he brings them forth. And then the second thing he does, he recognizes the depth of his sin. Verse five, behold, I brought forth in iniquity 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knows that this is something deeper, that this is something deeply rooted from birth, that this is not just some outward action by mistake that he did, but that sin is deeply rooted in him. And so we, we have to come before God and we have to take the same posture that David has in humility and come before God with our sin and say, hey, straight up, this is it. This is it. I confess this to you. And, and then we can take David's example even further and ask God for a renewal of our heart. Because again, God doesn't just leave us in there and he just says, okay, these are all the bad things that you've done. He doesn't just leave us in that, but he wants to renew our heart. Psalm 51, further on in verse 10, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. This is David speaking. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore in me the joy of your salvation and grant in me a willing spirit to sustain me. And so God wants your heart. He wants a renewal of your heart. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. Because this is, that's all this goes back to. It goes back to the heart that you have for God. That's what God is really concerned about is, is your heart. The, the laws and the rules and, and living a good life, that stuff will come. That will naturally flow out from that. But if your heart is far from God, if you're just trying to follow the rules and follow the law and, and allowing sin to take what was meant to bring life and, and, and allow it to bring death, then we're missing the point. We're missing the point of the law. Because the law is always meant to point us back to God. The law was always meant to bring life that comes from God. And so church, there, there is a life apart from this hustle, from this trying to do more, trying to be good out of our own effort like we talked about. There is a life of peace and joy where we aren't bound to what we do. We aren't defined by what we do, but by the grace that God has for us. That we can be children of God, that we don't have to be perfect, that we don't have to mark off all these things on a list, but instead we can just run to him into the loving embrace of our Father. One did like this, and, and I think Augustine says it so well. He says that God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. And so allow God's commands not to bury you, to bring you down, but let them remind you of him. Let them point you back to him, not away from him. To bring life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we confess these things before you. We confess this life of trying to do it on our own. We confess this life of self-righteousness, of pride. God, this, this spirit of fear and shame and guilt. God, we confess all these things. We lay them in front of you in the same way that David lays his sin in front of you the wrongdoings that we've done. God, we lay that in front of you. God, we ask for your forgiveness. God, we receive this forgiveness that you've given us. We receive this grace. God, we remind ourselves that we are not condemned, that we are not 
marked by the wrongdoings of our life, but God, that your righteousness has been placed upon us, that your grace is over us, and that we have been justified by our faith in you. So God, we thank you. We believe this, we receive this. God, would it change us? Would it transform who we are? That we would go, go further and sin no more, as Jesus would say. God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.